Welcome to Well Played Podcast, a show on all things playful and joyous in education. I'm your host, Michael Matera, sixth grade teacher, author, and presenter. Today, we have with us Brian Aspinall, and we're going to be talking about coding, assessment, and math. A little bit, kind of just a little bit of everything. Really excited about this show. Uh, but before we do, Brian, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Brian Aspinall. Uh, I'm a teacher from Ontario, Canada. I spent Woo. about 13. I know, right? Go Blue Jays. Go Raptors. Spent about 14, 15 years in the elementary side of things, grade 7 and 8, or I guess, as you say, 7th grade and 8th grade. And these days, uh, I'm in the higher ed space, working at the Faculty of Ed, teaching teachers about math, Minecraft, coding, and assessment. Wow. So this is like a this is like a little mini, you know, college lecture. This is exciting. I feel like this is like a job interview here. Like, I should get my faculty advisor on here. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, well, first, I guess... I would love if you could just like briefly give us a little synopsis of how did you get started down that path? Yeah, that's an easy one. Uh, it actually started in high school uh, for me. I had a teacher when I was in grade 10, 10th grade rather, and it was a media studies class and we had to build a project, uh, poster board. We had to do research on a pop star celebrity because it was a media studies and uh, I didn't want to do that. Um, so I asked if I could build our website. <laughs> I was the cut and paste person. So I asked if I could build a website at the time, my dad was a mortgage broker and being self-employed, he was trying to find new ways to advertise his business. And so he was teaching himself HTML and, uh, I was super fascinated by it. My uncle worked in it as well. Um, uh, he actually was big involved with the Y2K bug at, at his office, but that's a whole other story. So as a result of that project and learning HTML, my, myself in high school in the early nineties, I pursued computer science, and uh, I always wanted to be a teacher, so I kind of bridged the two together, thinking I would be a high school teacher, and I found my niche in grade seven and eight. That's so awesome. So I you were like, you're like, students, right? And my undergrad was computer science. So <laughs> that's awesome. You were like fully immersed in it then, like from the fully beginning. Immersed. Fully immersed right from right from Google's inception there in the mid nineties. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. That's really cool. So starting off like in class, like, uh, I mean, we can fast forward here to some of your more recent years of uh, sure. teaching, teaching these things. But like, I mean, how do you like naturally fit coding in? I've seen, I've seen so many teachers sort of try to like tag it on to something that doesn't necessarily need it or, or just, it sometimes feels clunky into the like process. How did how have you like managed to figure out how to like streamline that in so that it fits naturally to the product to the project yeah. or the activity? I, I've I'm guilty of trying to force it in places it doesn't belong to. I mean, I look at it <laughs> look, right. I, look I appreciate at it as, the honesty. <laughs> it, it doesn't fit in a number sense strand of math unless you're coding a game to practice number sense, <laughs> really. Sure. But um I've had the most success with it in certain strands of math. Probability is great because you can build solid, you can build games of chance. Um, it's worked great to in my what we call language arts class, yep, like an English class. Yep. Um, having students program like word study types of games. But the idea really, um, science has been a, a good one for me. I taught rotary science for a number of years, and simple things like. Uh, we studied the particle theory in, in grade eight, so a student could build a simulator that shows what happens to a solid particle as you add heat, you know, and it becomes a gas particle, uh, or the water, whoa, or the water cycle, uh, for example. So some of those places, it's just a really great integration that enhances the 
lesson because of all those other skills you get as a byproduct to that process. But certainly there are other places where coding for the sake of coding, there probably is a, a better approach, you know, use a green screen or something instead, maybe in a history class. Sure. Uh, I mean, I got to say, I have some tools I've used for coding, but I'm sure like you have probably better suggestions. I mean, I, I've really just used Scratch in class. And uh, I think that's probably like the biggest one I've used. There was one on the iPad I used for a while, but then our school got rid of iPads. So okay, yep, yep. don't use that anymore. So what are some tools you use that might be helpful? Um, I use Scratch predominantly in the elementary side of things because we don't have a coding curriculum. And, and I, I want it to stay that way because the second we have a curriculum, school tends to suck the fun out of things. Once there's a curriculum, it has to be evaluated on and we're going to create a standard. And that's not the purpose of the creativity uh, of computer science. So if coding remains as a tool for learning, um, then I know I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. Tools like Scratch allow us to teach the concepts without having to understand syntax. I'm teaching thinking skills. Um, I'm going to leave teaching syntax to my grade 10 counterparts here in Ontario that actually teach grade 10 computer science where they look at languages like Python or JavaScript or something like that. So for me, I love the block-based tools. Um, you know, students in elementary school hand in work full of spelling mistakes. You can't, they would lose sight of the process. They would lose sight of the task. If you ask somebody to build a Python coin flipper, and they've got a syntax error, a missing colon, they're going to lose sight of the task trying to debug that, which is why the block-based sure. environment has become so popular. We can teach the fundamentals, computational thinking, without actually writing syntax. Now, of course, you're limited. You're limited to those blocks and what the environment can show you. Uh, Microsoft MakeCode is another one, which is a fantastic tool used to program the microbit. I mean, you can use microbit and Scratch as well. But it allows you to see under the hood. You can switch from, from block to syntax, which gives you a bit of a continuum. I say that's one of those tools that grows with you. So in grade three, you're doing block. But in grade nine, you're doing syntax. But you're still using that, that same tool. So for me, those are my go-tos, the Scratch and the Microsoft Make Code, because you can add the hardware peripherals too, and it becomes sort of like layers of a cake, right? Um, your differentiation and your scaffolding is, is built right into the experience, into the sandbox. You don't have to go and photocopy, you know, lower grade work for a student who might not be working at grade level. You don't have to do that. That's like really like thoughtful answer. I like the kind of delineation between like understanding the task at hand, the, the larger project you're trying to like get to, but like you can get marred down into the like nitty gritty of, of the syntax when... Yeah. When you're when you're like you said missing a colon, I think my sixth graders might lose sight of the larger task as they're looking for that like little colon. Right, mistake. and your job isn't to teach the syntax of Python. You know, I'm teaching a science concept like the particle theory or something like yeah. that. Nature. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's like good. Like I'm trying to like the comparative. Like if I try to do a very large like video editing project, but that's not the point. Like for me, I'm a world history teacher, so. The point is to teach the history or to like enlighten the history or to like illuminate it. But if, if we get marred down into the like, here's how you use Final Cut or something like that, you, you lose sight of the bigger project. That's good. And that's valuable class time too, right? I mean. Ooh, class time. Super valuable. Super yeah. valuable. All right. I got to ask like another like super nerdy 
and probably wrong question, but uh, where I do the most, and I'm going to put in air quotes, I know you can't see this on the podcast, but uh, coding is I do a lot with Google Sheets. And like, that's got to be like, for, for a guy like you, that's got to be like pretty low hanging fruit there for coding. He's la- he's laughing at me. There's a big smile. There's like... Well, it, it, one, of, one of my first co-op, I was in the co-op program at university. One of my first uh, jobs was to be a visual basic programmer using Excel. And uh, so I, rem- I remember hating that stuff because it was so tedious, but that's an authentic way to use code to make your life efficient, right? That's what you're trying 100%. to do. hundred percent. Yes. I love it. So I get that. That's authenticity. That's not coding for the sake of coding. That's because, you know, you're trying to make your own formulas that aren't necessarily built into the, the built-in functionality. And, yeah. and it's, it's cross, you know, from sheets to docs to slides, right? You're not just yeah. stuck in it anymore like we once were. Well, the thing that I like about it, and I got to say, and I think, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, where it it transfers to more of your larger work uh, is there is an authenticity of like the desire to, to like I have a, a problem. I want an efficiency where I do not have an efficiency. And then to have to go out and kind of self-teach yourself. I mean, it's a lot of Google search. Like, how does this function work? How does a V lookup work? How does, you know, like, how can we flip a table like blah, blah blah to 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 produce what you want and you kind of like have this moment where you're like I can't be the only person in the world that that wants Google to do this right so then you start searching and you're like sure enough there's lots of people that have asked for this and here is here is how you code it but what it always showed me was it, this this idea that when there's a desire to learn something Gosh darn it! You're you're going to achieve it. There's like an extra layer of drive, like when it's when it's internal, when you want it, as opposed to just being like, "Teach it to me." And I think right. maybe maybe in your work, like I think 100%. kids are. I I just attended an ISTE session this past weekend, uh, and it was led by students, and they were showcasing their project. They'd won a contest, the Global Contest uh, Conrad Challenge, with smart technology. But what stood out for me is they said their their project. The adjective they used to describe their work was fulfilling. And these are 16-year-old students. So I thought, you know, there's a point where student engagement is only so much. And student investment is important. But these kids felt their work was so authentic. They described it as fulfilling, a reason to to do something. And I thought that is an incredible way to describe a project. And that is what you just mentioned there with the desire to learn piece. They were so invested in what they were doing. It wasn't even about the contest anymore. Um, I, I found that really powerful and really inspiring to me, fulfilling. That's a solid word. If we could get yeah. more of education to have that feeling to it. 16-year-olds, uh, you know, like, it's awesome. That is awesome. All right, so, like, we got coding. You have some of these things. We add this project in. Uh you know, I think a big piece that a lot of teachers sort of wonder about is assessment. Like, how do we do this? And I'm sure there's probably like multiple layers to this question here of like, are you assessing the coding? Are you assessing the final product? Are you assessing the history? Or in your case, like the science project? Wow, like how do you do it all? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I think one of the biggest barriers to change is the narrative of grades. Um, I realize the importance of grades. Yeah, right. I know that the relevance of grades 
increases as we move up through the grade. I'm really tired of the excuse of post-secondary being the reason we still have them. I interviewed for my university program 20 years ago. You know, my, my grades got me to the interview, but the interview was the make it or break it for me to get into my computer science program. Um, so back, to, like the assessment piece, you can't, in my opinion, if you're engaged in the scratch environment, the kids are doing geometry without even realizing they're doing geometry. The whole system is set up to be a, a Cartesian grade with with X and Y, and it becomes a set, it becomes a level of of mastery. It becomes a did you demonstrate an understanding? And you can't take a scratch project and and quantify it. You can't say it's a seventy two. It just it, it is or it isn't. And if we start <laughs> looking at so lame, that just <laughs> sounded so lame. Like you have a seventy two on this thing. Yeah, 72 on your scratch project. I think if we start looking at student work as being fixable rather than right or wrong, that's going to change a lot of mindsets. When people like you know with Final Cut, if you're doing video editing, uh, there is a process. And when you get to the end, it, it's done. And that's sort of how I see the scratch environment too. Um, but thinking of student work as fixable rather than right or wrong really, really helps with the feedback piece and pushes us away from always putting numbers on absolutely everything we do, which obviously always implies uh, an endpoint. If kids are creating content in Minecraft, I think it's the exact same narrative. Um, they're engaged in the sandbox and they're creating content to the best of their ability. So in a way, the A letter grade can no longer be the same definition for each student, so to speak. A student with an IEP, their A-letter grade is going to look different than a student without, but in the Minecraft space or the coding space or whatever, modern technology space, they're all creating content to the best of their ability, which makes it problematic for us to say your best is only a 72. I love everything you just said. It, it really like dovetails with kind of my work, my work with playful learning and gamification. They're what I love about gamification versus like the traditional grade model or even standard-based grading, in both of those, there is that endpoint. Like, especially with standard-based grading, there's like, you've made it, you got to the four or whatever the top of your grade scale is. Mm -hmm. But like in the real world, right, there's, there's, there's infinity, right? Like there's, there's more that you could have added. There's more you could have done. And not that we want to like have kids breaking their backs going all the way out, but like, I also don't like to define that this, this, this thing is perfection. You have a four, like it's, it's not perfection. It's, it's good. You know, and it might be, it might be great for a 12 year old, but like, I don't like that finality of grading. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that we have success criteria and anchor charts and rubrics and then exemplars. And then we say in the same context, but I want you to take a risk. Here's, here's what we're looking for. Here's what last year's students did. This one's really good, but I want you to now think outside the box. And, you know, as long as whether you're driven by grades or not, it's a motivating factor for every student. And, and I might, I mean that in a negative sense too. a kid who's not driven by grades is not going to be motivated to do any kind of a project because they already think they've failed, right? The yep. system is set up in such a way to fail them that they don't even, they don't even want to approach the task anymore. And the kids that are driven by grades only care about what they got. They don't care about the learning, you know, that, that took place in, in that process. So like in your work, like you said, it's not part of the standards. There isn't a like core curriculum yet in, in Canada for coding. And there are parts where our, our, curriculum up here is done by province. British Columbia has a coding curriculum out now. Sorry. It's, 
it's a technology curriculum that has some elements of coding in it. All right. Uh, but like you were saying, one of the reasons you want it to remain that way or remain as loosely tied together as possible is for that flexibility, is for that realism of kind of the real world. Uh, that's also one of the things, like I said, that I love about my gamification is it's open-ended. It's more realistic and it feels more authentic to the student and and hopefully impactful, right? That 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 they're... They're learning out the whole thing exists outside the box, right? Like there is there is no box. And, that's right. Yeah, and who knows Yeah, that's just so powerful. Uh, so with your assessments, like is it more feedback? I mean, is it more like constant feedback loops? Constant, I mean, is that constant feedback? I mean, that's the world in which we live. I, I've been saying there's two pieces that that I say during my keynotes often. One is, and I'm guilty of this, saying I need a math mark. And just by saying that in the staff room, we, number one, we know it's report card season if somebody is making that claim. Number two, it's because we've got this idea where teachers believe they have to fill a mark book, and that's not the truth. Three, in 15 years I spent in the classroom, I never showed a mark book to a single person. And four, the second we say I need a math mark, we're implying now immediacy. And that means we're going to give a quiz and we're going to give a worksheet because it's easy to mark. And then I have a tangible piece of evidence to put something down on a piece of paper and justify what I already know about the student. But that moment, that that 30 minute moment where they're trying to capture that mark because they need a mark book, it's not going to be an accurate reflection of of what you know the students did. I, I often say we don't judge Sidney Crosby's ability to play hockey by the results of just one period. There's a lot that plays into his you know, definition of, of being a good hockey player. The other piece is everyone keeps saying, you know, how do you do report cards without grades? Well, in this day and age, you probably would agree, report cards are redundant. You know, if we're using technology and communicating with parents on a regular basis, like we should be doing the, the report card is a redundant piece of paper and there should not be any surprises on that when it finally goes home. hundred percent. I actually love everything you just said in that whole little like soliloquy there. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's like, I don't know. It, I subscribe to almost all of what you just said with the, the, the marking, putting marks down. I used to be very like, I used to do that cause I thought you had to do that. You have to have all this data to justify your grades. And then, like you said, I've never really shown anybody my grade book. Like you don't, the, it doesn't need to be seen. It doesn't need to be there. And mm -hmm. slowly I've walked back and back and back and back and back. And actually the results from my students have, I think improved at very least they haven't gone down, but I think that for a lot of them it's increased because they don't feel like these moments, these like moments of like, I, ha I have to produce it right here, right now. I completely agree with that. I've, the less emphasis we've put on grading at my former school, the better our students were performing. And it was a cyclical thing tied to confidence, tied to engagement, tied to lack of fear, which then, you know, you're more willing to take a risk. And let's be honest, we're, we're preaching risk taking in a system in which failure is punished. When kids fail at school, they have to repeat things and nobody wants to do that. So the less focus we, we the less emphasis we put on that. I agree with you. I found that our student data, particularly on our standardized tests, because we were still doing them, was going up, was getting better. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, the, I actually picked up this sort of mindset of 
the grades kind of don't matter. We can like set them aside was a very good friend of mine who was a drama teacher. And he, he's like, I don't, I like, I can't like say you have an 82% on this. Like, yeah, exactly. It's, exactly. it's drama. But then he, then he challenged me. He's like, Michael, I want you to go upstairs. Cause it was marking period. He's like, I want you to go upstairs and like write down what you think everyone should get. And then go like to your grade book and like do the report card. And I was right on like every single one of them, but one. And I think I was off by like just a, you know, A minus to B plus. Like, yep. So, like, like you said, it's like if you're a professional teacher, if you've done this and you know this, it's more of an art form, but, but it's in you. You know where these kids are at. You know which ones need to be pushed a little more. You know yep. which ones can get a little more out of. You know ones that have like tried their darndest and this is where they're at. Like, yep. I don't need 20 quizzes to show me that. I don't need 10 worksheets to show me that. Like We we have a, if I might just for two seconds, we have a, a, a document here in Ontario called Growing Success. It's a ministry document. And you can Google it. I encourage everyone to give it a read. It's, so it's our assessment policy in the province of Ontario. And it talks about the trifecta, right? There's a reason cell phone towers use three to pinpoint a cell phone location for accuracy. So the document says... When you are evaluating a student and giving a grade, use student product. And then it says in brackets, student product doesn't always have to be a test. It can also be portfolios, but it can be made up of student product, observations, and conversations. And the three of them don't have to be weighted equally. In fact, it's teacher's professional judgment as to how they wish to weight these. So in theory, you could simply talk to a kid and produce a grade without having any sort of student product. That's what our, our document says. Try to use the most consistent and most recent uh, evidence based on those three criteria, observation, conversation, and student product. And I love that. I love it. It's given us so much freedom. What's that called again? It's called Growing Success, Ministry of Ontario. Google it. That's <laughs> it's awesome. A great it's been out for a number of years now. It's a great document. I love that idea. And without even knowing, maybe I'm part Canadian. I don't know. Because like <laughs> that, that's more or less what I do. I mean, it's based on a lot of conversations, a lot of observations but, you know, with, yeah. with, a, with a touch of product, you know, like. Anecdotal, right? And, there, and that's what I noticed, too, when I started to get away from a mark book. I was like, it's all anecdotal and it's all in my Google Classroom. I have a, a running record of feedback. What am I worried about a mark book for? I can quantify this at any time if I had to. And like, you shouldn't have to though. Like, Fair I don't enough. know. Like Fair to quant, like what? Like you want me to, so you want me to give a number to your child? Like yeah. they have a 91. Does that make you sleep better? They're a 91. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, a, fr a superintendent, a friend of mine in British Columbia said, you know, like when, a newborn's learning to walk and falls. You don't say the kid got two out of 10 if they only took two steps out of 10. You celebrate the two. You say, get up, next it's four, and we're going to master this. Right. You don't just throw in a towel and say, oh, you know, walking's not for me, I guess. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> or you yeah, go to so you barbecue and you're like, how's little Johnny doing at hockey? No one says, ah, oh, he's a 67. They're like, oh, he can tie his own skates down. He can skate backwards and stop. Good. That's true, right? Like in life, we talk like when we're talking outside of school, we talk about those those moments, those moments where somebody can do something new, where there's like they've taken their next step, their next level. But then, in school, we reduce it to that. We reduce it yeah. to they're sixty-seven, but that's improvement because they were a fifty-seven last quarter. There you go. Like, 
I don't know what either of those two numbers mean, but I know one number is bigger than the next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Uh, all right, so I get a, a little back to more of your work and kind of your passion. Uh, as an educator, w with, with that mindset, with that philosophy you have about sort of failure and growth and feedback loops, what what's probably one of the messages you'd want to send to like a new teacher if there's like a brand new teacher starting off grades can feel like i don't know there's like safety in it right like well i gave them a quiz and they got seven out of ten that's now I can yeah, exactly and now i can confidently look, look at the parents in the eye and say they're a 70 percent yeah the what i would suggest what i would say to them right off the bat is the the biggest the number one subject area that needs a drastic shift is math because math is scored based on a quantity of correct answers and typically it's the only subject area unless you're looking at knowledge and understanding in this science content and you're doing vocabulary so to speak um, but when we view math we can't view math as a score it's like when I taught phys ed I didn't grade my kids based on how many foul shots they could make out of 10 because they'd all fail so why was I doing the same in math right now, granted, that comes with experience, and it takes a lot of good pedagogy and learning to get to that point. But for a new teacher, I would say less is more, and you just need to be the curriculum expert. Please don't be the tool expert. Far too often when I present and talk about coding in Minecraft, I hear, well, I have to play with it myself. I have to play with it myself because we're, we're not comfortable as educators dropping kids into a space that we're not familiar with because we feel we have to hold their hand through it. And, and I want to completely throw that out the window. We don't need to be the Minecraft expert. You need to be the curriculum expert. You just need to know what Minecraft can do. Let the kids do the rest and then let them just showcase their brilliance because they're going to take it and extend it way beyond any worksheet or textbook could do. That's awesome. I love it. Uh, well, I mean, I can't believe it, but we are near the end of the show here and we always end with uh, reflection time. Reflection time is where I'm going to give you a quote and <laughs> you and I are going to sort of talk about how it applies to what we've talked about today. You okay. ready for okay. this one? Yeah. Is this a random quote? This is not a random quote. That would be, that would take it to another whole level if I just sort of ran <laughs> like just random quote generator. Uh, this is from Linus Trovaldus. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, all right. It is pretty simple quote. Ready? Yep. Talk is cheap. Show me the code. <laughs> How does that hit you based on what we've talked about here today? Okay. Uh, well, I think, um, I think in that context, code is a metaphor yep. and the metaphor is more of, uh, a, a, pra a practice, what you preach, uh, sort of thing, which is important. We didn't even talk about social media, but that's very applicable to this quote because we only share the good things from our classroom on Twitter. We don't share the bad things and we need to change that a little bit too. But back to what we talked about here. Say that one more time to practice. What, what is it? Practice what you preach. Show me the code. No, <laughs> no, it was talk, talk, talk is cheap. Show me the code. <laughs> talk is cheap. Show me the code. All right, that sounds like somebody questioning integrity about your own philosophical educational beliefs. So Dang. I would say if that were uh, if that were said to me, I would say um, you can 
follow my body of work and you can see the research that I've accrued over the last 15 years on my blog and the examples in my books about really cool projects kids have done are evidence enough for me to know that it's a great approach for many students in my school. Um, if I had to put, if I had to take a class of students and put them in two groups, which I don't like to do, but it, if we say there's kids that are motivated by school and driven by school, those kids are going to do well in just about anything that is school related anyway. The other side, those are the kids that we, we want to inspire and we want to move. Not suggesting we ignore the first group, but the second group is the group that I've seen really shine. We went from having 90% of our grade seven and eight students not coming to school on snow days to 90% of our students coming on snow days. And we said, why are you here? Like all of our work is on Google Classroom. And they said, Mr. A, FOMO. So what do you mean FOMO? They said, literally fear of missing out. So those approaches to learning uh, certainly suggest, I think, that talk is cheap. But there's my my 15 years of evidence on my blog at brianaspinoff.com. Shameless plug. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, I I would agree that I think when when you read that quote right talk is cheap show me the code I I equate that I'm gonna frame it in my work my body of work kids can talk all the time adults can talk all the time about the things that they will do or can do but it's like show me what you actually do show you know show me what you have done and then then there will be sort of a a stronger belief in what you say you can do because you are going to do it. You're, you're proving to me that you've done it and that you're going to continue to do it. You've consistently done this. This is a thing. This is your core beliefs. Uh, and I dig that. So Brian, before we sign off here, can you, instead of a shameless plug, can you give a really real plug to your work? Uh, I'm excited. I got a, I got a signed copy of his book the other day, but I want you to like plug all your work here. All of it. Okay. All of it. Well uh, you find me on Twitter at Mr. Aspinall. My CV, if you will, is MrAspinall.com. My blog is BrianAspinall.com. I'm also on Instagram at, at Mr.Aspinall. And if you do a quick Google search, you'll find my three TED Talks uh, and my two books. That's awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us here on Well Played. And everyone else, thanks for connecting and sharing out this space with us. Every week it gets bigger and bigger. So... Thank you guys. Enjoy your week and play on.